Welcome in once again to another edition of On Mike with Jordan Rich, where conversation is alive and well. Conversation with creative people who have a lot to say. I welcome an on-air reunion with a fine writer, James Gavin. With previous books we've talked about, including The Long Night of Chet Baker, Is That All There Is, The Strange Life of Peggy Lee, and Stormy Weather, The Life of Lena Horne. Well, he's tackled a new subject, George Michael, in a book called George Michael, A Life. It's getting rave reviews across the world. This book is definitely James Gavin's most ambitious effort as he examines George Michael's incredible talent as a composer and performer, a man beset by personal demons that didn't stay personal, his troubles splashed across world headlines, leading ultimately to an early demise. Fascinating reading, and James Gavin is here to talk about it right here on Mike. The book is called George Michael, A Life, and uh, it's a lot of book. We were just joking about the fact that it's it's very thick and very detailed. Congratulations on your latest project, Jim. Thank you, Jordan. It's great to see you again eight years later. This book has gotten more attention by far than any book I've ever done. It may be getting more attention than all my other previous books put together. And your previous books are all about musicians and uh, famous ones, Peggy Lee, Chet Baker, and so forth. Lena Horne is the third one, right. yes. And and as I now know, the people I've written about it in the past were legends. George Michael is a superstar, and there's a big difference. We'll talk about his personal life, which is so important to the story, but Let's focus on the superstar thing, because in reading the book, I didn't realize again how accomplished he was, how many awards he won, and how many top chart listings he had. Can you give us a synopsis of the musical career again, Jim? Sure. George Michael grew up in North London, Greek father, Greek immigrant father, British mother, And from a very early age, maybe six or seven years old, George was obsessed with the idea of becoming a superstar. He wanted love and acceptance on a massive scale, and he got it. He spent his pre-adolescence, adolescence, and teenage years with a very specific plan in his mind about how he was going to get there. What he had going for him was simply everything. Mm. He looked great. He had a natural ability to create catchy tunes that would stick in people's heads and make them happy. But more than that, he was a a dedicated, dogged student of uh, pop music and R&B. He was such a student of pop music that he would listen to Motown recordings that he found around his house or heard on the radio. And he had the ability to dissect them in his mind and to figure out what it was about them that made them have the effect on people that they did. And he absorbed all of that. George Michael cannot be called an original. He has seldom been called an original, but what he had was a voice that sounded like none other and the ability to touch hearts. And so George um, set his mind to, to completely analyzing and absorbing the art of pop music, uh, which is a whole monster unto itself. Pop music has the broadest possible appeal of any, of any music out there. So as 
all your listeners know, as everyone knows, when George, as a student, met a fellow student named Andrew Ridgely, who was as cool as George was nerdy and Mm -hmm. weird. George saw a template for the George Michael that he wanted to be. And so when he and Andrew formed this duo in London, he, George, copied the style, the, the flair, the, the, the swagger of Andrew. Andrew was mainly there as an image template for George. And George took care of most of the music. And so from the beginning of Wham! around 1983-84, George Michael produced pop music that swept the UK and then swept the US. And that's uh, the way it all started. Yeah, the story of Andrew uh, and George is pretty interesting. And you go into detail about their school years. And again, we'll get to the personal stuff in a minute. But Uh, Serendipity is everything in any field, particularly the arts, and the two of them getting together to form Wham! I remember when Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go came out, and it was a sensation, and a lot of people didn't know what to make of it. It was a sound that was reminiscent and yet new and exciting at the time. It had elements of 60s R&B, the Motown world, especially the Supremes. George had assimilated all of that stuff. Uh, I mentioned earlier that George was not and is not perceived as an original, but I have to wonder how much of pop music is original anyway, and how much of it is simply taking what you've absorbed throughout your life and shining it up and repackaging it and hopefully putting your own spin on it. The, The thing about the Wham era, though, is that it was George and George knew this. It was bubblegum pop meant to reach the widest audience possible. And George outgrew it pretty quickly. By 1986, he was out of Wham! and planning big plans for the future George Michael. And he completely uh, recast his image as this uh, sexy, hyper-butch, biker dude type of guy. And throughout George's whole um, career, really, He was struggling with the fact that he often felt like he was living a lie, that he had created Mm -hmm. a phony George Michael, sold it to millions of people, and it really bothered him deeply. You talk about the image, the physical image, and this is pre-social media days when you had to do it uh, the old-fashioned way, magazines, maybe TV appearances. So much effort that he put into creating this persona you talk about the struggle, the inner struggle. Let's talk about where that inner struggle starts. And you also alluded to the story of his dad, a Greek immigrant, not understanding of certain lifestyles. Let's let's explore what impact that had on young George. The relationship with the father that you mentioned is pivotal to the entire George Michael story. It is something that haunted him his entire life. George's childhood implanted the seeds of self-hatred in him. He was a young, blossoming gay boy hiding it, who was the son of, as you say, a tough, intimidating, very traditional-minded father, not unlike, I assume, most of the fathers of his generation. Greek Orthodox background, which added an 
an extra layer of harshness and complication to George's growing up. There was the homophobia that he was hearing and witnessing at home, but there were also the realities of the times, and that is that George was, let's see, born in 1963. He was getting into his late teens when AIDS uh, broke mm -hmm. on the worldwide scene mm -hmm. and hung an added veil of shame over gay people, shame and hiding and an enormous stigma that further intimidated and scared the hell out of George because he had on one hand a big secret to hide in that day and age especially, but also because George wanted this uh, stardom on a big worldwide scale. That was his specific plan. And he knew that those two things radically clashed and that he somehow had to create an extremely masculine heterosexual persona to counteract the inner George. And the turmoil that that produced was extraordinary. There was George in 1988 on what would become the biggest world tour of any artist that year. And that was the age, of course, of Madonna and Michael Jackson also. But, but the Faith Tour, like the album, was gigantic. And George had achieved every bullet point of every goal that he had set out for himself. And he was there touring the world on stadium stages with a din of screaming and delirium in the audience beyond anything he could have imagined. And he was miserable up there because he knew the untruthfulness of it. And he felt like he had sold a big lie mm. and that they weren't loving him for him. That's a story that's echoed in, in the annals of uh, Hollywood history and music history and the arts. Old Hollywood, you know, stars that were covering up for their homosexuality and the stressors and pressures. I don't know of anyone who survives that very, very long. Now, he does have a, a coming out period uh, when he feels it's right. And this is before some of the horrible things happen in the public venue in terms of arrests and so forth. When and why did he uh, come out as a gay man? Well, he had as early as the uh, wham period come out to a couple of people that he was very close to. Mm -hmm. But thereafter, they, they were very few in number. And he desperately wanted to come out when he met a Brazilian man in Rio named Anselmo Falepa, whom he perceived as an angel on high and a, and a, and a, and a door to a new, truthful, loved and accepted phase of his life, or so he thought. Anselmo and George were together for a year and a half before Anselmo died of AIDS. And the news that he was HIV positive came six months into that period. And it was simply a cruel uh, thunderclap from up above because George felt that he had gotten that close to, um, to, to bliss and it had all been grabbed away from him. That was 1991 that they met. In 1993, Anselmo died. George remained pretty much deeply closeted until 1998, 
1998, a most unfortunate public scandal occurred in which George was arrested for lewd behavior inside uh, a men's room in the Will Rogers Memorial Park, which is in Beverly Hills, very close to the West Hollywood border. Now, a tiny bit of background on that. Anselmo's loss was a tremendous trauma for George. Uh, in 1997, his beloved mother, Leslie, who was possibly the one person alive at that point whom he felt complete unconditional love from, uh, whom he also thought of as an angel, uh, and to whom he had come out after the death of Anselmo, and in a way it only made her, her, love, uh, her love him more. She died prematurely of cancer in 1997, and that event is really what sent George reeling and set him off on a self-destructive path that exploded on the worldwide press with that arrest in mm -hmm. 1998. And mm -hmm. from that point on, George was careening out of control. And um, almost as though it, it was forced upon him to finally free himself of the secret, right? How did he do it, uh, Jim? Did he do it publicly via press release or just the world got glimpse of him and he told enough people? How did that happen? Well, it made, it was breaking news mm. and I was watching my television when those news reports broke in on the six o'clock news and so forth. And uh, within 48 hours, that news had traveled the world. Because George had been so aggressively closeted up until that time, the, the nature of how he had forced himself out of the closet was particularly mortifying to him. Mm. Also, at that time, his U.S. career had, was on the downslide. As you know, in 1990, George Michael released this hit album called Listen Without Prejudice, Volume 1, which contains a few tentative steps toward George Michael trying to, to, to stand in the light and reveal in a very cautious ways who he really was. Then he sued his record company unsuccessfully in an unwinnable, tremendously publicized and costly lawsuit. When he lost it, in the time between 1990 and the release of his next album, Older, in 1996, George Michael slid off of his perch in the U.S. He didn't have a new album out. He was replaced. That's the way pop music at that level goes. It's ephemeral. Mm. And so George spent, in my view, the first half of his life creating George Michael and the second half destroying George Michael. Now, in April of 1998, he was forced to confront the fact publicly that he was gay, forced also, he felt, to justify why he had stayed in the closet for so long. And those television appearances that he made, one notable one on, on CNN, and others on MTV and VH1 and every place else, he had a lot of explaining to do. And his discomfort in those appearances as he tries to appear cool and in control and witty 
is really interesting to see. Let's talk about the drug use because that led to his death ultimately. Uh, when did it start? Uh, was it was it the kind of thing that started very very young in in school? Not at all. George liked to drink, but drinking at that time, but drinking was not any big deal for him. It was just part of the pop mm -hmm. star lifestyle, I suppose. He had tried cocaine back in those days, but he didn't like it and it didn't really stick with him. It was in, I would say, the early to mid 90s. Well, and then he, he discovered ecstasy, the big party drug during his Anselmo years because Anselmo liked ecstasy, but ecstasy was on the cover of Time magazine. It's, it's just, you know, the love drug. It's, it's, it's nothing that destroys lives uh, most of the time. However, George became by the mid nineties, a full-time stoner. Reality was getting harder and harder for him to face unbuffered after the loss of Anselmo. So uh, he made an album called older which is the completely stoned album hmm. and that is the album that made me fall in love with the, the music of george michael it was a flop in the u.s but it was almost like diary entries of his life with anselmo he was trying to break out of the closet by he dedicated the album to anselmo for one thing while keeping the wording in the dedication a little bit vague but that album is filled with beautiful Brazilian-influenced, uh, melancholy uh, introspection. And while he wanted that album to catapult him back to number one, there's no way it was going to do that. That devastated George also. So he moved from a period of, he, he never gave up pod, of course, but then he moved into the harder stuff. And in 2003, 2004, he discovered a very dangerous, insidious party drug called GHB. Mm. And that drug became his drug of choice from that point onward. But then he discovered crack cocaine and was in fact arrested in a men's room in Hampstead Heath, the, 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 the famous London park that has an equally famous cruising section. And uh, he, he was ingesting a lot of smoke. He smoked cigarettes, he smoked pot, and, and he also on occasion smoked crack cocaine. And these all that smoke had a big effect ultimately on his voice, which we can talk about a bit later. But the, the bottom line is that George could not face life unstoned at that time because he was in so much pain and confusion. Jim, were there folks in his life who were trying to interdict at that point? Uh, we often hear about rock and roll uh, legends who have the posse that just uh, pushes them along and doesn't really do anything but hang on. Who were influences? I know his mother had passed, of course, in the late 90s, but who, if any, were trying to help him? Anyone? That's a great question, Jordan. I interviewed enough people who told me uh, about the lack of that that I have to assume that because... George Michael was 
a superstar with many people on the payroll mm. who, uh, and, a, and a guy whom people wanted to stay in the good graces of. Also, he lived in a great deal of denial. Accountability was not something that came easily to George. And when you are around the big, big star, then you say what it, it, you have to say in order to stay in that person's good graces or on the payroll. And unfortunately, people who stepped out of line would get 86 so uh, he had a dear beloved sister named Melanie, who sadly, tragically died three years to the day after George died. She died George died on Christmas Day of 2016. Melanie died on Christmas Day of 2019. Um, he had loving, caring friends, but... As with many people who, who live in, in the throes of addiction, they don't want to know, they don't want criticism, mm. they don't want help, they don't want guidance, and they have to bottom out and find their way out of the, of the rabbit hole themselves. And George was, in, in my opinion, almost unhelpable. Efforts were made, interventions were made. It isn't that his friends didn't love him and care about him and worry about him, but George was so determined to self-destruct. You you point out, and I think it's part of the success of your career as a biographer, you point out the, the highs and the lows. And getting back to the highs, George Michael was a very, very charitable fellow who didn't look for the glory in the giving. And... I know he was photographed with uh, Princess Di and all that, but he did give a lot of support and money to a lot of causes, didn't he, Jim? Not only did he do that, untold millions of pounds to his pet charities. George had a very big heart. He was very compassionate, even though he lived in this extremely heady stratosphere of celebrity and wealth. Uh, George, in other ways, had his feet on the ground, and he silently helped friends who were in need, strangers who were in need, human rights um, organizations, uh, Project Angel Food, very important one in his life. Project Angel Food is uh, Los Angeles-based and is essentially, uh, or was at that time, a a Meals on Wheels program for people uh, suffering from HIV or AIDS. George uh was not in this for the photo op he wasn't in it for the press release he didn't want this uh philanthropy known for the most part which is one of the really beautiful things about him george did have a big heart uh george knew to to the extravagant degree to which he was privileged and especially as his musical productivity thinned out and he felt that he was losing his core identity. This philanthropy philanthropy became a way for, for George to, he felt, justify his existence and actually do some good. As you point out uh, time and again in his life, there are moments that seem unsteady and uh, responsibility for his actions not top of the list. And talk, of course, about the uh, public sex issues and the drugs and so forth. And yet uh, he weathered all of this, but never really came back uh, and and rose back to the top of his game. 
And you can almost see it, as you point out, uh, 2012 at the Olympics in London, appearances where he's failing and he's not as sharp and just not as with it and not as musically adept. The arc is here at the beginning. I'm holding my hands way up and then slowly dipping. It's really, it's, it's a, I was going to say an American tragedy. It's a worldwide tragedy when this happens to anyone, but certainly for the British uh, celebrity scene. You keep wishing and hoping he figures out what he's doing to mess up his life and turns it around. It just doesn't happen. You're raising another great point because George never got the the uh, the drive to be number one out of his brain. Mm. He there's a quote in my book, a very revealing quote from George, in which he talks about the psychological damage and need of people who need to be embraced on that level. They need the love and the the approval of millions of strangers. George recognized the fact that that was a kind of a, a product of, of, of a broken psychological nature, that kind of need. But he never managed to shake it. Um, Madonna was much more canny than George was at keeping up with changing musical trends, especially dance music. Now, of course, she is one of the saddest case examples of someone who cannot mm. grow up or mm -hmm. let go mm. of that obsessive need to be young, fabulous, and cutting edge. George, uh, around the early 90s, I would say, started to kind of lose touch with, with changing musical fashions, even though he wanted to hook into them and, 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 uh, and, and keep changing with the times, a lot of the pop music, the, the, especially the dance music that he made from the early 90s onwards starts to sound a little bit dated. George was drifting from the scene. He was not on the cutting edge of anything. And unlike a lot of pop artists who have had their white hot peak and invariably moved on from it, and then got down to the business of simply making the music that was in their hearts, and um, and 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 doing it for the audience they had, rather than trying to forever capture young people, young people, young people. Uh, in other words, becoming a kind of prestige artist. Uh, George couldn't do that. He was obsessed to the end with being number one. And in the UK, George is aristocratic to this day and every album that he made with the exception of his album of standards reached number one but that was not the case in the u.s his albums were his albums performed disappointingly from uh older onward so the difference in perception between george in the uk and here is is dramatically different he was considered more of a disposable artist here. Hmm. Um, I, I was going to just 
toss in a personal note, and that is as a disc jockey, I can use that term because I was one, uh, for many, many, many years through the 80s and 90s. Uh, I remember playing a lot of George Michael music on our format clock. And for me, a song like Faith, which I think is his, one of his best pop songs, is almost timeless. I, I think you could pluck that song into any era. It's got a rhythm track. It's got a jazzy, bluesy kind of hip thing. I don't number too many artists who can pull that off. Uh, maybe James Taylor, he sounds about the same as he does now. But it, it really is remarkable that you could hit on something like that. And for at least one DJ in Boston, it's a timeless tune. It just kind of lasts in that time I set. I heartedly agree with you. Yeah. Whenever to this day I mention the name George Michael to anyone, I see a glow come over their face, almost to a person. Those people will smile and say, oh, I love George Michael. And they will name one of those songs, one of that handful of songs that has stuck with them all these years and the memory of which just makes them feel good. George's period of peak productivity, as I said earlier, was brief. It was from the mid-80s Wham! period until, in my opinion, the older album, which is full of beautiful, heartfelt work that was not as commercial as George wanted it to become. And then after that, as I said, his productivity diminished. He was not prolific. His two great heroes, Stevie Wonder and Elton John, were so prolific that you couldn't keep up with everything Mm. that they were doing. They made so many albums uh, and continued to write uh, pretty high-level pop music longer than George did. Songwriting became such an incredible struggle for George from the early 90s even onward, and it just got worse and worse as his depression and his drug use increased and as the pressure to be number one uh, weighed on him more and more heavily. So there are only, I believe I said this earlier, six albums under George's own name, six solo albums, and then singles, duets, videos, Mm. and various other doodads. But the body of recorded work is pretty slim for someone of his magnitude. I wouldn't want to have Andrew hear this, but he was always the trivia question. Who's that other guy and wham, <laughs> you know, uh, among among the uninitiated. What was the relationship like after they broke the, the group up and did they stay in touch? The answer to that is yes, they did, but they were no longer close. Uh, they were, their lives diverged dramatically. Andrew's shelf life had expired at the end of wham he tried making one solo album which has its moments but unfortunately nobody really cared he was always in the shadow of george michael even though he was in many ways the template for george michael they reunited from time to time and they maintained what in my view seems to be a distant and cordial relationship and they if if it hadn't been for andrew there probably would never have been a george michael and it wasn't musical importance it was the fact that george that saw in andrew an example of coolness mm. uh, that he knew he had to emulate because the the real george michael would just wouldn't do 
Finally, just in terms of your work and research, which is extensive, of all the books you've done, uh, because he's more of a recent celebrity, even though he passed back in 16, was it easy to get a hold of people to comment uh, easier than, say, the Lena Horne folks who are generation behind us or the Peggy Lee folks? Just talk a little bit about the process with us, if you would, Jim. The process was brutal, Jordan. It Mm. was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. And I will return to my earlier statement that George Michael was a superstar, whereas Peggy, Chet, and Lena were legends. And one of the big differences uh, therein is that the degree of access was much more difficult because someone of George's wealth and fame has many more layers of protection around him. Mm -hmm. What I found was that, okay, I signed to do my book in May of 2017, six months after George had died. First of all, people who knew him were raw from the loss of George. Second, I found that I unfortunately was perceived as a a tabloid uh, gossip monger simply by virtue of the fact that I was asking questions about George Michael's life, life and wanting people to talk to me about him. And so it was the first year of this book was really hard. I was quite depressed because I thought, how will I ever get what I need to write this book? People won't talk to me, but that began to turn as George's death receded a little bit into the past. And this marvelous man named Danny Cummings, who was George's percussionist for many years, he invited me to visit him in France and somewhat reluctantly talked to me about George and in in great loving depth. And that seemed to be my good luck charm because from that point onward, doors started to slowly open and more and more doors opened. And as it went well with people like Danny, then other people agreed to talk to me. And in the end, I spoke with around 250 people. I had accessed over 2000 articles about George and I had everything that I needed to tell this story the way I had set out to tell it. Well, it's a story that uh, fans of his and there are fans in the millions will enjoy reading. They'll also find the pain and the uh, sadness to be moving as well. Textbook look at what celebrity can be like, and it's not all rosy, no question about it, but it's fascinating nonetheless. You continue to uh, really knock it out of the park when you come to these musical bios. These are real people with real issues, just like all of us, and uh, can't thank you enough for getting in touch. And anytime you have another project, you know I'll be here to ask you the questions, my friend. Jordan, I would rather talk to you about this stuff than anybody. Wonderful to reconnect with James Gavin, outstanding music biographer. Again, his latest book is George Michael, A Life Available Everywhere. Thanks to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media for his help in publishing. Thanks, of course, to Chart Productions, where we produce this and many other podcasts. And most importantly to you, the growing audience, for subscribing and downloading, for rating and reviewing this podcast heard on all major platforms. Find out more at jordanrich.com. And until next time, be well so you can do good. Take care.